The title of this is called Redeem the Time. And I hope with this lesson that somehow you walk away empowered, that you can make a conscious decision to act differently and to think differently. And I look back over the 13 years, gosh, that I've been doing teaching people, counseling people, all that good stuff, and I'm saddened because it's so much time has been spent in so many energies on the problem. And be it my job is to try to get people to the solution. Don't know how effective I am at times. But um, a lot of energy is spent on staying in the problem. We put way more energy in the problem than in the solution. And we take steps forward only to somehow take steps back. And it's like, we like the game of forward and backwards. <laughs> because we always do it. It's like, oh, I got it. This sounds good. This feels good. I'm walking forward. And then, oh, I think I should just go back. So I wonder, what will it take for us to really stop the insanity and step into our sanity? When will we grow tired of ourselves and make the continual steps in the right direction? Or are we just destined to live this crazy life? Now we know that God is a God that makes the crooked path straight. He gives sight to those who are blind, yet our paths continue to be quite crooked. In our eyes, we don't see nothing. He said that if we asked for wisdom, he would give it freely, and he would open our ears to hear, yet we understand very little, and we keep our ears covered. We are at times aware that things are all wrong, but the moment we get this clarity, we run to the safety of our denial, and we scream louder than the truth telling ourselves we really are okay. In my heart, I know it is a lie, but I allow myself to be fooled yet one more time. Is it me protecting me from possible pain, the pain of the truth, the truth that I have to hide myself from, the truth that everything has been the way it's been, since I was like five? A truth that I choose to say is a lie so that I can smile and laugh and seem normal? If the scripture is real and the truth shall set me free, then why do I choose a lie in fear? And why do I fear freedom? Is the cage that we have locked ourselves in really keeping us safe from the pain? Or are our cages an illusion as well? Have they really kept us safe? I wish I could differentiate between those with God and without God. But when it comes to pain, we are all trying to run from it and hide. We play hide and seek. And the pain always finds us. We hide and try to get lost in our addictions and our vices 
And when we give up those vices for Jesus, we use him as another way to hide. But when we use Jesus and the pain still finds us, it's like a triple blow because he was supposed to guard us and protect us. We knew the addictions and the vices were not going to do that. But when we gave ourselves to God, we thought that he would. Jesus was supposed to catch me when I fall, but somehow I keep hitting the pavement. So if God can't help me, then where do I go? Do I just determine to myself that this is my life and the life that I have to live with? As if I'm impossible, excuse me, if I'm powerless to change it. If we look at Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, and I'm going to read this from like three different versions just so we can have extreme clarity. We'll start with the King James. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Amplified version. Look carefully then how you walk. Live purposefully and worthily and accurately, not as the unwise and witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people, making the very most of the time, buying up each opportunity because the days are evil. Lastly, the message. So watch your step and use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. The word rendered here as redeeming. It means to purchase, to buy up from the possession or power of anyone. And then to redeem, to set free as from service or bondage. So here it means to rescue or recover our time from waste, to improve it for great and important purposes. So I ask the question, who or what possesses your time? Who or what has you running in circles and hiding? Who or what do you need to go to and buy yourself back from? I know many of us have had, and still have, some serious pains and hurts. I know many of us have tried to relinquish them, for them only to come back and kick us once again. I am not suggesting at all that we have not tried, and tried over and over and over again. Some of us don't try hard enough, but some of us have tried. But the time that we have is a gift, and we are urged not to waste it. We are told to buy it back, take it out of bondage, and cherish and respect the time you have. It is not acceptable just to sit back and wait for God to appear and do nothing with our time. He said to set your time free because the days are evil. And many Christians have decided to do nothing with their time because the days are evil. Wow. We just twisted it. 
That's just Satan. He just know how to come in and flip stuff so easily. Just little stuff. I must take us back to our first relationships because this is where we learn so much of who we are and what we are supposed to do. It is in these relationships that many of us have learned not to trust, not to love, and not to live. In these fundamental relationships, we have discovered that it is unsafe to let others love us as well. So we have a fear of loving and of being loved. Because of this, we have been wasting time since childhood. Time that should have been spent growing and learning, flourishing and gleaming how wonderful life can be. Instead, it was clouded with fear and rejection, pain and sufferings. These first relationships have left such a lasting scar on our psyche that though we know it does not have to be the truth, we hold on to it with everything we have. We spend all our time trying to make a lie the truth, that now the truth has been covered and hidden. We can think of many things and they're basically core beliefs that we hold on to. And though we know that it is a lie, we still tell ourselves it. Oh, whatever your mama told you, whatever your daddy told you, I didn't tell you. You took these ideas as true beliefs, and even though they've proven to be lies, you still hold on to them. Why do we want the lie to be truth? So let's look at the good book, see what it has to say. Let's go to Titus 2 and 14. It says, who gave himself on our behalf that he might redeem us, purchase our freedom from all iniquity and purify for himself a people to be peculiarly his own, people who are eager and enthusiastic about living a life that is good and filled with beneficial deeds. If we go to Ezekiel 37 and 23, and here he's talking about Israel, and he says, they will no longer dishonor themselves with their idols, with their detestable things, or with their rebellious acts. I will forgive them for all the times they turned away from me and sinned. I will cleanse them so that they will be my people and I will be their God. So in Titus, we see that Christ came to purchase our freedom from all iniquity. Iniquity is the vice, the wickedness, the injustice, of the sin. The reasons why we sin. He came to free us from the reasons why we sin. Not just the acts, but the reasons why we do what we do. Some sins we partake in are because of the injustices that were done to us. This is why it's silly 
just to stop behavioral acts and not understand why you do what you do. Knowledge of why we choose the sin we have to have. Remember, sin is anything that makes you miss God. So our fear, our doubt, our double-mindedness, our jealousies, and all the other acts must be examined. Without an examination, we cannot release them because we keep asking God to remove it. And he needs us to understand the whys before he can remove it. So we sit there and cry and run up and get oil poured on us. Take this away. I don't want to do it. Lord, forgive me. I didn't want to do it again. I keep doing it again. Take it away. He's like, I'm not taking it because you don't quite understand yet. You won't sit down long enough so that I can teach you about you. Let me teach you about you. Let me tell you why this thing looks so attractive to you. Why this thing keeps grabbing your heels. Until you can understand that, you're going to always trip up on it. No matter how many times you pray, no matter how many times folks put their hands on you, you fall out. It don't matter because you don't understand yet. Until we get the understanding, we miss Jesus every time. Remember, the scripture says he wants us to live a sensible, intelligent life. Not to be dummies. Understanding is a key element. Yes. And we sit there and we're just dumb. Yes. We read a bunch of stuff, say, don't do that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not supposed to do that. And that's not helping me because I want to do that. And I know we ain't supposed to say I want to do that because we got the Jesus with us. You know, we didn't been transformed, supposedly healed. God didn't delivered us. We free people. And I want that. And I feel bad for wanting it. And then we condemn each other for wanting the sin. So in Ezekiel, and I'm hoping this is going to be clear. This is the part that just blew me away. He says that he is going to deliver us from dishonoring ourselves with idols. Idols can be defined in the Bible seven different ways. One, nothingness or vanity. And I'm going to break each one down a little further. Two, a thing of naught or contempt. Three, a terror a fright, or a horror. Four, a shame, or a shameful thing. Five, filth, or impurity. Six, a shadow. And seven, labor, as in man's labor. At the end of the definitions, this quote was there. And it says, nothing can be more instructive and significant than this multiplicity and variety of words designating the instruments and inventions of idolatry. And we think that we are not worshiping idols, yet we are. So we're going to break each one down. The first one, nothingness or vanity. Vanity. 
egotism or narcissism? Now, narcissism, a psychological condition characterized by self-preoccupation, lack of empathy, and an unconscious deficit in the self-esteem. This is a normal condition at the infantile level of personality development. So this is normal. We all go through the narcissistic phase. The problem is that we're still little children wanting to be the center of attention because we didn't get that fed. So as he said, we sitting there saying, somebody look at me, somebody listen to me, somebody talk to me. We get stuck here as adults. So it becomes all about me. And we've created our lives in a way that the only thing that matters is me. And we are willing to take down whomever gets in the way. Self-preservation is one thing. But oftentimes, we are attacking those that never attacked us for fear that they may attack us. So everybody's game. Everyone becomes the enemy that we must defend ourselves from. My ego has become my idol. Number two, a thing of not or contempt. Not just means just nothingness. Contempt, the feeling or attitude of regarding someone or something as inferior, base, or worthless. You got scorn. It is the state of being despised or dishonored or disgraced. Many of us carry this secret that we really see ourselves as inferior to others, but it's a secret. I ain't gonna tell nobody. And we cover the secret by trying to seem untouchable and unbothered and arrogant. But really, we just feel like crap. Pride is the flip side of shame. It's just an illusion. You feeling worthless has become your idol. You just preoccupied with how stupid you are, how ugly you are, how you can't get nothing right. You trying to act like you're humble. No, you just idolizing yourself. Or you're feeling grandiose as your idol. Just the flip side, same coin. Being judgmental is an idol. This idol can creep up very easily be careful because we start looking at everybody else because I got to put you down to lift me up. And really, judgment really comes in because I don't want to be rejected. And I don't want nobody to say what I'm doing and how I feel is not good enough. The good Jesus checked me on this about two or three weeks ago. And I was shocked because I wouldn't consider myself as being judgmental, you know. I'm above that. <laughs> I just love how he just comes and just checks me so often. And I'm sitting there in my own little mind thinking I got everything figured out. You know, I didn't got this relationship with Jesus together. 
it's just me and him. We intimate, we're passionate, really loving him. He's loving me. And I'm looking at other folks saying, oh, you're not quite where I am. Oh, I wish you knew what I knew. Oh, that's me judging them. Oh, darn, what did you tell me that for? Because in my mind, I thought I was really just wanting them to have this greatness that I have found, but it became something that I put too high. Who am I to say how people are going to get where they're going to get? The same way I don't want them to tell me I'm not where I am. So he slapped my hand, told me to sit down and shut up. I had to repent. Shocked me, though. I had to cry a few tears because I was like, oh, my gosh. That's ugly. That's ugly. And the thing that he also got me with is I was sitting there and I was feeling, I was crying and stuff. Because I was, my feelings got really hurt, hearing some of the stuff people were saying about me and all this kind of good stuff. Um, and he, and I was saying, that's so sad for people to put down my character or to think that my motives are impure or that what I'm setting out to do is not from a good place. And he kindly said to me, that's what you do to me. You keep checking and acting like my motives aren't pure and my character is not upstanding. You feeling, you crying, and I was really having a good cry that day. You know, I was just running down the freeway and having some tears. and. In me feeling pity for myself, he just said, excuse me, now you know how I feel. I said, oh, to Jesus, goodness. You know, this happened close together, the judgment. The ah. So we have to be careful that we don't trip up into these things because we start idolizing stuff, thinking we being on the high ground. Number three is a terror, a fright, or a horror. Now, this is intense, sharp, overmastering fear or an overwhelming, painful feeling caused by something frightfully shocking, terrifying, or revolting. Many of us have experienced some frightful things. And unless you give them to Jesus, you can begin to idolize them. The fear that it happened or could possibly happen again becomes your idol. So you get stuck worshiping the thing that scared you. And you just keep it ever before you. You've made the image of whatever that was. And you keep bowing down to it, keeping you right there and not seeing Jesus. Number four, shame. It's a feeling deep within our being that makes us want to hide. We feel suddenly overwhelmed and self-conscious. The feeling of shame is of being exposed, visible, and examined. We then continue to do shameful things because we're trying to run from the shame. And usually that's been placed on us as children. Until you study your life and dissect it to find what you are hiding from, you will continue to idolize your shame and the shameful acts you did. 
Shame is huge. Can take you out. But we can get so wrapped up in it that all we do is look at it. So it stays right there before us. And we know we're ashamed. And we know we think we're no good. And we keep hiding and we keep running. And I keep thinking you're examining me when I'm not really thinking about you. And I keep thinking you're saying this, that, that, and that, and I'm not even you tripping. Because the whole world, you're just living in this glass house, and you think everybody is looking at every move you make. You idolize that then, and that's what you begin to worship. Number five, filth or impurity. This is a dirty or corrupt condition, foulness. One thing with impurities is that they are known to infect clean things. So we have impurities in us. We get in contact with the good stuff and then we infect that. Because we don't like it to be clean. We like our dirtiness somehow, because it's comfortable. So God presents me something new and clean and I dirty it up. Some of us are some filthy folks. Some of us have done some corrupt and horrible things to others, to ourselves. We even try to infect others so we are not the only ones dirty. Some, you know, just to make a simple, small one, and it's really not simple, but just like gossip. It's an ugly thing. Especially when you're really trying to defile somebody, malign their name. Yes. But one thing you will see with gossipers that have this pattern, they always pull you in. And before you know it, you were just sitting there listening at first. And you were like, dang, that's some jacked up stuff they're saying. And then somehow they pull you into it. And then you didn't say something about somebody you know you shouldn't say it. And then forever you're stuck trying to say, oh, God, what if they tell what I said? So then I feel some indebtedness to you because you got to hide this secret that I was talking about them too. Then it just becomes this little dirty, little nasty way up that we all get ourselves stuck in. Be careful when you get a joy out of seeing people hurt. Now this is nothing we ever admit to. This is our secret stuff. Keep in private. I'm not going to ask no one that raised their hand. <laughs> but when you get a joy out of seeing people in some pain, that's a little filthiness. And see, some of it is a little revengeful because some people done done some crap. And I kind of want you to pay for what you did. And I may have a little smile if your car gets an accident. Lord, forgive me. But in the, you know, the first response, if we're going to be honest, you say, well, you got what you deserved. Oh, well. We don't want to get stuck there because then we just become as filthy as them. Number six, a shadow. A dark figure or image cast on the ground or some surface by a body intercepting light. What has intercepted your light and is now casting an illusion of darkness all around you? If Jesus is the light, what came in and blocked his light? So now all you see is darkness. 
Now, Satan is notorious for this. He loves to cast the shadow of death on us. And until we move under the shadow of God, he gets to torture us. We stay under the shadow. We keep getting beat up. We keep thinking we're dying. No, we're not. It's all an illusion. And remember the thing with shadows, they always look bigger than what the object really is. So it's this little small thing. And it's small because Jesus is so big. The devil has now magnified it, and we sitting there thinking that it has covered our whole existence. When really, it's just like this. So what has intercepted your light? You got to go find out what's casting the illusion of darkness on your life. Because if you don't, the shadow will become what you then worship. Labor. Now this is develop or dwell on an excessive detail or to burden or tire. We in the church, we often praise folk for being extra busy for God. But unless you're working under the spirit of God and honoring him in your labor, your labor has become your idol. So you're doing all the stuff. It looks good. It looks right. You're out all night. Folks are patting you on the back. Woo, you just didn't gave up your family. You didn't gave up everything. You, you, you're barely working no more. I got to take off work for the council. I got to do this. I got to do all this stuff to work in the church. And all I'm doing is praising my own labor. That has become my idol. And we can't fear. We think we didn't sacrificed all this stuff for God. Look what I gave up for you. I'm in the church every night. Every time the door's open, we there. And he said, you are not about me. You just about yourself. Well, pat yourself on the back, because I have no pats for you. Be happy with the praise you're getting around town, because I have nothing to offer you. Even folks that pride themselves on being workaholics, you begin to idolize your own labor. When you become burdened or tired, that is time when, the time when you have to stop and ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it just to look busy? Just to put in the work because usually I'm trying to get away from something else. So let me busy myself. Let me say I'm just doing it and I got to put food on the table. I got to pay the bills. No, you don't. You ain't got to work that hard. You running. Find out what you're running from. Because your labor done became your doggone idol. Remember, God's yoke is easy and his burden's light. Why are we so doggone burdened? Now, why doesn't he translate through all of our lives? Why is it just, just we trying to make it one little facet? Okay, well, right here, I don't have a burden. And that's supposedly with the Jesus. And then half the time, we can't stand him because we think he's putting extra burdens on us. So he says that we're dishonoring ourselves with these acts. Now, who knew that we were making idols out of this stuff? 
just a little something. And that we're actually worshiping this stuff. And what do we do? We adorn it in Jesus' face. We know better than the rest of them. When we read that stuff about them, what the Israel folks, they went and made the calves. And you say, God, he didn't took you out of, gave you the manna and all that stuff. And how could they make those doggone idols? Why would they make a calf? And we just chiding them. Da, da, da. We got a boy, five or six, sitting right in our doggone bedroom. All pretty. We didn't put time in them. They carved all nicely. And we think that we're so above it because we got to Jesus. We just full of the spirit. And look at us. We're missing Jesus. Why don't we worship him? Why would we think it would be good to worship our narcissism? And who wants to raise their hand and call themselves a narcissist? No one. We say other people are narcissists, not me. But I'm preoccupied with myself. All I think about is me. How this affected me, how my life looks like this. Me, 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 me. That's your idol. Now I ask you this. Have these idols given you anything? We putting a lot of time into worshiping them. But we think we're getting benefits, y'all. Because we wouldn't keep doing it if we didn't think we got a benefit. So somehow, we think these idols are a little more precious than the Jesus. Shame on us. So again, watch yourself for narcissism. Before you chide everybody else, look at yourself. For your contempt, for your fear, your terror, your horror, bad stuff happened. You cannot worship it. You cannot get stuck on the crap that went down and say, this is where I'm staying. I have a right. And you got a right. You got a right to be sad. You got a right to mourn it. You got a right to grieve it. You do not have a right to worship it. Our shame our filth and our impurity. Why would we worship that? Because that's the part we say we don't have. <laughs> Who's raising their hand that I'm filthy? That was before the baptism, right? <laughs> Something. I just was taken by all this. Because I didn't know I had these idols. Lord, help me. So God says again, we're dishonoring ourselves. We have made idols out of the detestable. We are worshiping these things and dishonoring ourselves. We are wasting the gift of time on this stuff. The idols lead to detestable acts, which then leads to rebellious acts. So we start with the doggone idol, we lead to the detestable, and now we're just rebellious. And I should have started off with this, I'm sorry. But once you hear it, and you know these are your idols, and you keep worshiping it, that means you're extra rebellious. See, before you might be didn't know. Now sorry all y'all know. <laughs> Figure y'all should join me. <laughs> 
we can no longer be rebellious in this. Shoot. But look what God says at the end of that Ezekiel. He says, I will forgive them for all the times they turned away from me and sinned. All the times. And I will cleanse them so that they will be my people and I will be their God. Now, there's a difference between the forgiving and the cleansing. He pardons us. He says, I got it. Then he washes all that filth off of us. So we're no longer, it's not on us. And this is what we do is that we don't accept the cleansing. A part of us kind of grabs the forgiveness. Okay, he forgave me in the sea, far from east from the west. You know, we know how to quote all that stuff. But the cleansing, that I'm clean, like there's not a mark on me from my worship of myself. There's no more any dirt specks on me. Receive that. Every time we worship these idols, we're turning away from God. So picture yourself in your room. I'll see your room. Now see all your graven images sitting up on your dresser. Picture Jesus sitting right there on your bed. You see him, but you turn from him and go to the images. But he can't leave, can't forsake you. So he sits there and he watches you worship your images. He just sits and watches it. And he's in tears. Because he has emotions. Because we're saying that the holes in his side, the holes in his hands, the thorns in his head, simply not enough. He died the death to redeem us and to redeem the time. That was lost. Not just me, which is big enough, which he could easily stop there. But he said, I'm also going to give you back the time that was taken from you. And the time that we gave up. That's how good he is. That if you picture how long many of us have been with Christ. And all the times we've left him there and worshiped another. And he just stays. He stays. Which is mind-boggling that he stays in love with me. Not mad. Not ready to just cast me to hell. But stays there until I get it. And all he wants me to do is turn to him and talk. Now, I'm borrowing from Andre, his last retreat. He probably don't remember he said this stuff, but it was good. So we have four steps to bondage, and we have 
Three steps to bondage, sorry, four steps to healing. The steps to bondage are a cold heart. You refuse to let the love of God and others penetrate your heart. You refuse. You refuse to say, God loves me. You refuse to feel it. You refuse to say he's passionately in love with you, that no matter what you do or you don't do, he'll never stop loving you. You refuse to receive his love. Number two, your ears are blocked. You can't hear nothing. God keeps whispering to you. Hmm. Saying, come find me. Come search me out. I'm right here. Hey, hey, y'all, me. Remember me? Remember the one you act like you love so much? The one you were so excited about when you first felt the anointing? The one said you would give everything up for me if I would just come in and sup with you? Me. And y'all going, la, 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 la. Don't want to hear you. I'd rather listen to everything else. I'd rather listen to my idols. They speak loud. Hmm. And thirdly, bondage. Your eyes are closed. You see your life as a mess. And you know God can help you, but you refuse. So what do we do? We come in. We sit in pews, we go to prayer meetings, and we do nothing to change our lives. Because I don't want to see that I'm a mess. I refuse to let God's love penetrate me. I refuse to hear him calling my name. And I refuse to see that I am in straight bondage. You can choose to stay there. The longer we stay in bondage, the harder it is to get free. Because your mind gets used to being bound. Think of those slaves. Many, 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 many of them stayed. You get to go, y'all. You're free. No, I master, I just stay here. I know this. I work for you. I don't want to be free. I'm scared to be on my own. I don't want to go out there in that big world. You know, we're like prisoners. We're like, just please keep me. He didn't went and paid the price. He didn't said we free. And we telling the warden, uh, can you keep me in my cell? I don't want to go nowhere. Why do we choose that? And then we lie to ourselves talking about we want freedom. Won't we just say we, we enjoying the bondage? Tell the truth for a change. Maybe the Lord can deliver us. Because until we can admit we like where we are, in a sick kind of way, we will always be stuck.
because this is how you get healed. Number one, you got to see. Will you look at the reality of your life with clear vision? If you fail to see the problem clearly, you will misdiagnose. If you misdiagnose, you will mistreat. And if you mistreat, you will never heal. Ask God to show you the reality of your hidden secrets, the reality of your past. Who is really responsible for the things that wounded you? Get out of the narcissism and making yourself all about you all the time. Let some other folks hold the bag. Ask him to show you how he sees you. How he sees your past, your present, and your future. Ask him to take you on just a nice little tour of your life. Now, we can't just do this if we don't really want to see it. Because he's not going to show us. You know, we love to say, search me, show me. We just be up there lying. You have to see clearly before any healing can begin. You got to know what you're trying to treat. Number two here, what are the messages that you have heard about you? Now, what is the truth of those messages? What message do you keep feeding yourself that are simply lies? Until you can identify the lies, you cannot tell yourself the truth. You cannot hear God speaking. Ask God to confirm the lies with you. And then ask him to speak the truth in your life. Now, number three is to understand. Once you see and hear your truth, you must offer yourself understanding without condemnation. And I'm going to read what he read in James 1, 5 through 8. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. He will gladly tell you, for he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. Now, wisdom is very different than the exact answers. Wisdom is helping you to navigate and figure out how you're supposed to proceed. You may say, God, why did this happen? He may never tell you why. But he will give you wisdom about how to deal with it. That's wisdom. We get the two mixed up. Then we say the Lord ain't listening. And he ain't answering us. No, he's trying to tell you how to deal with it. He don't have to give you the answer. But when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you. For a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And every decision you then make will be uncertain as you turn first this way and then that way. If you don't ask with faith, don't expect the Lord to give you any solid answers. Ain't that a booger? This verse makes it very clear that God wants to help us out. Wants to. 
But when we change our minds on knowing the truth, it stops him from being able to set us free. When you gain understanding in mind, it heals your heart. Because remember, he wants us to be intelligent, sensible people. Our hearts and mind are very connected. You cannot separate the two. We often want to live with them being detached. It's impossible. This is one reason why we are so double-minded. Because my mind is telling me something and my heart is saying something else. And I don't know what the heck to say no more. And I often say as I'm going through certain dilemmas, my heart's got to catch up with my mind. Because my heart is feeling it all. And my mind is trying to tell me, no, you got to release this. You got to let that go. But my heart is saying, but it's too painful. I got to hold on. Where do I go after I let this go? I know the truth, but the truth hurts so badly, I try to convince myself of the lies. I know what is bad in my life. I know the people that are bad in my life. But it hurts so much to rid myself from the things and the people that I tell myself a lie that maybe they are good and it is just me. I would rather carry it than release it. Now number four, and your final step in healing, is the transformation or the redeeming of the time. We must choose to buy our time back take it out of the possession of our idols. This will lead to our spiritual and natural transformation. So let's look at that verse just one more time. Ephesians 5, uh, 15 through 16. Look carefully, then how you walk. Live purposefully and worthily and accurately, not as the unwise and witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people, making the very most of the time, buying up each opportunity because the days are evil. Again, the Message Bible. So watch your step, use your head, make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the Master wants. And in Ezekiel, God tells us what he wants, and that is to forgive us and to cleanse us so that we can be his people and that he can be our God. That's simple. All he really wants. So let's redeem our time. Let's buy back the affection that was lost, the innocence that was lost, the pain and the hurt, the abandonment and the ridicule, the shame and the secrets. We need to choose to let the Redeemer redeem us, the totality of us, to set ourselves free. He died the death so we could live and not live sorry lives, but to live lives with purpose and with worth. We must decide that you, and you have to feel in whatever that you is, cannot take anything else from me.
you have to make that decision that whatever it was that robbed you, that took from you, you can't take nothing else. You already took so much. You already took X, Y, and Z, but you can't have anything else. My self-esteem, my intellect, my heart, my tears, my time, my desire, my family, my kids, my faith. You can't take nothing else from me. You didn't took it all. No more. I am buying it back with Jesus's cleansing blood. He paid the price. We don't even have to pay. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That was the whole beauty in the redemption. He redeemed our time. On that cross, those three days, he was buying back time. He was buying back when somebody raped you and you got lost and your innocence got snatched and you're living in fear and terror and you can't trust and you can't believe, he bought it back. When your daddy walked out on you and said you was a nothing, in those three days, he went there and bought it back. Why don't we let him redeem us? Why do we keep wasting time? Don't we want what he has to offer? We have to really ask ourselves, why are we staying where we are? The steps forward, the steps back, when we could just walk in the newness of life. He did it all. All we have to do is live, using each opportunity wisely. The fact that Jesus paid a debt he did not owe is even more fascinating to me. Because we have made the cross a little too small. When he died, he took it all. We were supposed to wake up and say, woo, look how we're living now. This is the life. We don't have that. We're living way beneath where we're supposed to live. If we cry out, God will stand still. The problem is we don't cry out. We just kind of do a little whisper, Jesus. But we got to get like them in the Bible. The Zacchaeus, the woman with the issue of blood. They wasn't just letting him pass by without some healing coming their way. Folks told them to shut up. Folks, so the, the good apostles told the Jesus, why are you fooling with these people? But they said, I'm going to be healed. So we want healing not to be something we participate in. We want it to be something that's just delivered to us. And this is why we never get healed, because we don't want to participate. We say, God, you do it. 
Well, we know you're able. You say you're able. You can do all things. Ain't nothing too, you know, small for God or too big or however y'all say that thing. But why don't we really do that? Why don't we go for it? Are we that afraid of a little pain? Do we not trust and believe that God is right there standing next to us, embracing us, and ready just to walk us out of it? Think about when he healed those people, it was like that. But we don't do the steps they do, we just quote the story. We know the stories. We know how to quote them. We know how to say what they did. But we don't do what they did. Cry out. From your depth, may God stand still. Who touched me? Who was yelling my name? Everybody's rushing them. No, wait a second. I got to be still right now. My child is talking to me, as he said. He's standing there listening, and we keep shutting our mouths because we don't want to speak the truth. Now, once he is standing still, he's going to ask you what you really need. Will you tell him what you really need? Or will you give him that little fake answer that we've been giving over the years? Or will we say, I need this, 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 and that? I need you to go buy that time back. I need you to go redeem this for me. We need to tell God we want our time.